This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spent half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains of Central Oregon. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life, even now as a media creator and a beer professional. This is how Mountain Sea Media was born. I realized how impactful stories are to our lives and business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 41 of Good Beer Matters. very interesting to see how many brewers shy away from the cold side of production because it tends to be the most daunting. I would argue that almost every plate of food you have has some derivative of fermentation. There's a reason that you can't just take those components um, and make a finished beer. It has to go through fermentation. Fermentation is a process that used to be hailed as something magical or mystical. Then we learned that fermentation is due to a single-celled organism that turns our batch of porridge into something far better. Many of us consume fermented food items on a daily basis and don't even realize it. It's surprising to think about how poorly most of us understand the fermentation process despite the impact it has on our culture. While brewers take the credit for masterfully manipulating ingredients like malt and hops, it's actually the yeast that does most of the heavy lifting. I wanted to reach out to the experts in industry standard setters to help us better understand what we need to know and why we need to know it. My next guest is our guide into the mysterious and tiny world of yeast and fermentation. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 41 of Good Beer Matters with Eric Fowler of White Labs. into uh, more deeply into the world of yeast. It's one of the main four components to making a beer or any any uh, liquor, wine, cider, uh, even whiskey. I mean, it, you know, everything needs to be fermented and yeast do all that work. And it's kind of a very fascinating world. But first, will you uh, introduce yourself and tell us about uh, how you got involved in beer and what you do? Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was awesome. And yeah, my name is Eric Fowler. I'm the education manager uh, at White Labs and based in San Diego. Uh, but we are a global company, so we've got three locations. Uh, headquarters here in San Diego, uh, Asheville, North Carolina. We've got a large production facility, uh, brew pub, a pretty cool restaurant, and then Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and we have a small uh, warehouse in Hong Kong as well. So it's been, a, it's been a great company and a great journey. I've been in the industry for about a decade. Um, started off with beer and wine sales. Uh, worked for a small nano brewery for a couple of years and was really able to get my feet wet, do a little bit of everything, being the only paid employee. So that was a great learning experience. And then spent about two years with Stone Brewing Company, and I've been with White Labs for just about five now. Wow. Um, so... Uh, I assume you were brewing and you, uh, can I assume you have a degree in fermentation of some sort as well? Yeah, so my my story in that regard is pretty unique. So I started more on the sales side and, and dealing with people and communicating has always really been the interest um, of my journey. So I got my sister on certification in 2012, 2013. Um I've done a lot of sommelier training, um, and I got a certificate in the business of craft beer from San Diego State, uh, probably 2015 now. Um, and I've done a lot of you know UC Davis courses, uh, uh, different quality assurance workshops, some of the Siebel programming and that kind of stuff. 
Um, but yeah, because of that, my story is a little unique and, um, I come from, you know, hands-on brewing side for sure, but definitely I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sales guy at heart. Cause you know, I really like communicating, uh, what tends to be complicated topics in the way of fermentation and trying to make it a little bit more accessible for uh, not only the general public, but brewers too. It's, it's very interesting to see how many brewers shy away from the cold side of production because it tends to be what seems the most daunting. Um, you know, a lot of people might change hops, might change uh, the techniques they're using to um, extract those different compounds from hops, whether it's different dry hopping techniques or you do doing whirlpool or mash addition. Um, but when it comes to fermentation, you know, a lot of breweries tend to be pretty timid um, and just stick with the strain that they know is consistent, which is great. Um, a fermentation profile that's consistent, but it's it's often interesting to see um, experimentation, trying new yeast strains and trying new fermentation techniques, and um, really communicating that. So the big fun aspect of my job. Interesting. Um, quick little uh, dive into the weeds, but you mentioned that uh, a lot of brewers you find are kind of timid, uh, timid to change up their uh, yeast propagation and yeast pitching routine. Um, that kind of harkens back to the Lambic brewers where they, they won't even clean the cobwebs off the ceiling or if they do move um, facilities and they spray uh, wart all over the walls just to try and keep that environment and that terroir. Is that kind of the same thing? that people do or is it just a little bit more of a mystery to them that they don't want to change it if it's working yeah i mean i guess the idea behind that you know it's consistent in the sense like um just like anything when somebody teaches you to do it that's the only way you know it that's what you're going to try to replicate right gotcha um what's what's kind of a romantic a romanticized story with you know what you were saying in canton moving facilities and um you know spraying lambic all over the walls to um, try to, you know, make that microflora consistent throughout other facilities. Um, you know, when we're in the, the Americanized brewing industry, we're trying to do the opposite of that, right? We're not trying to, you know, we're trying to keep things consistent, but we're trying to maintain as much control of that as possible. So instead of using these, uh, the environment to inoculate your work, you know, we're going through, we're doing our due diligence to, to get one consistent culture uh, and make sure that's very consistent from batch to batch to batch. Um, but where, you know, where a lot of brewers, uh, might not be as familiar is the one culture that they've been taught to use, which is generally a California ale type yeast. Uh, you know, maybe there's a better yeast, uh, strain that will produce that style a little more accurately. Um, you know, if you're doing an English porter, there's a chance that an English strain, uh, might accentuate those malt notes a little bit different. Um, and produce a more drinkable beer. So, you know, it's, it's, again, it's interesting to see how a lot of breweries will try the, the new experimental hop variety without even blinking an eye, but um, trying a new yeast strain is, is a little more finicky because, you know, when something goes wrong, it, you know, has a little more potential to um, skew a beer away from what you're intending. Interesting. So it sounds like we're having a conversation about uh, R&D in breweries, but um, do smaller breweries really take the time uh, and, and the resources to do a little bit of R&D on the side, be it a uh, like a home-brewed 5 or 10-gallon batch? Yeah, I see that quite a bit. Um, you know, benchtop trials are pretty difficult to uh, accurately see how the beer turns out from a sensory standpoint. But yeah, 5, 10 gallons, or a lot of times we'll see a one or two barrel system is a little more common. Um, but what's kind of cool about that and still, you know, reigns true to what we do here at White Labs is we have two tasting rooms, uh, again, one San Diego, one Asheville, and we have a 20 barrel brew house with 16 five barrel fermenters, uh, which is really unique. And I've never seen another brewery set up, um, with this opposite scale, right? Usually you're going to get a 20 barrel brew house with 20 to 80 barrel fermenters. Um, and we're kind of scaling down instead. We've got that 20 barrel brew house and five barrel fermenter. So what that allows us to do is do a split batch and then uh, do up to four different fermenters with the same base wort and then inoculate four different yeast strains, which, you know, it's kind of doing that R&D um, on our own, which is really cool and teaches us a lot about strains that maybe we haven't worked with that much because we have so many in our catalog, you know, um, can't always... 
have all the data points if it's a, a newer yeast strain or maybe something you're just releasing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, and I do that as a home brewer, and I think a lot of people do that as a home brewer because, it, you know, it's already pretty much set up into the infrastructure. You have a 10 gallon, uh, 10 gallons of wort, and you separate out into two carboys, and you have the opportunity to do this. And I just brewed a Munich Dunkel, and I've tried, okay, let's try this Munich yeast, and then try the Bavarian yeast, and, and see how they're different, how they're the same. And that's, that's just kind of easy. But it's interesting that more brewers don't do that. It sounds like you guys are set up to. It it's actually sounds a lot like the party guile system, where you have one mash to rule them all, but you can separate it out and just see the the uh, compare and contrast the the yeast profiles in 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 reality. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. It keeps everything um, in the way of the other ingredients and your base wort the same. Um, you know, we're, we primarily have that brew house to produce wort for yeast propagation, but um, it was kind of cool design that they decided, you know, we can still brew beer on this, so we might as well throw some fermenters in there and, and share the beer. And it's, it's cool to see, you know, what's successful and maybe what some misses are. Um, and you're able to get really um, specific in your preferences, too. So, you know, kind, kind of going back to what you were saying your batch was, if you get uh, a couple lager strains that maybe the differences aren't as stark as say, you know, Hefeweizen versus an American strain or um, a Belgian strain versus an English strain that, you know, those side by side are going to be very, very different. But if you get two strains that are very similar, like two lager strains, you might only see slight differences of differences in attenuation, which is going to change malt character perception. Um, it's going to change the accentuated bitterness or any other, uh, malt drives flavors and so it's it's cool to see how those nuances um really impact preference. Um some people might like one beer with uh you know one lager strain and some people might prefer it with the other one, even though on paper if somebody handed you either of those you'd be fine with both. Mm hmm Yeah, I, I find that interesting, especially um if you find yourself at a at a beer fest that it's just doing like okay we're just doing just lagers at this beer fest well now you can really start doing a little bit more scientific yet enjoyable tasting process i find that fascinating yeah. and i and uh, hopefully people listening find that equally as fascinating but that's a great way to go about it yeah it's it's, it's geeky and you know you do you do get some misses so we've gotten better at what strains we choose based off of you know at the end of the day we still have a tasting room and we want to sell beer so if you have uh you know we do pale oils and again one would have um uh, say california five ale yeast and the other one would have a hefeweizen strain well it was really cool to explain to somebody that might not even understand what yeast is that you know it impacts these beers in a different way uh the hefeweizen pale oil is probably not going to sell as well and you end up with you know, 100 gallons of the Hefeweizen Pale Ale left while the other one's gone, and uh, now you just have a mediocre beer that you're trying to sell. So yeah. we've gotten better at uh, showing differences, but really picking stylistically accurate strains while doing so. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit, and um, you know, we kind of got in, started to get into yeast. So I want to pull out just a minute and tell me about White Labs. Tell me the the story of White Labs. We started in 1995, uh, probably about five, five miles from where I'm um, sitting today. But uh, we start. We were started by Chris White, who is our owner, founder, president. Um, he's getting his PhD at UCSD and working in a lab at school. Uh, well, also homebrewing. So he started homebrewing at a small homebrew store uh, towards San Diego proper, and uh, just realized that there wasn't great quality yeast available um, to homebrewers or professional brewers. And during that time, he was able to propagate some brewer's yeast to Sacramento Cervisier up at school and bring it to the homebrew store and share it with his friends. So he do that about once, twice a week, and they would blow through it. You know, so he really saw demand for it. And, you know, in the, in the last almost 25 years now, it's, you know, grown to show how much the industry's grown, um, but how much you know, knowledge has been achieved during that time and how, how improved quality uh, is overall. I mean, even in the last five, 10 years, uh, beer quality, you know, domestically has um, increased quite a bit. And uh, a lot of it's better access to quality ingredients. Uh, and then just in general, having a better understanding of how to use them. 
Um, so yeah, during those early days, you know, he tells a lot of stories about uh, trading a lot of pizza for yeast for places mm-hmm. like Pizza Port, uh, meeting Vinny from um, Blind Pig, which later became Russell River. Um, they were kind of uh, in Riverside, which is north of San Diego here, and uh, meeting him halfway, trading yeast in parking lots. And, you know, we've we've come pretty far since then, but uh, fortunately the, uh, the camaraderie and the the idea of that homebrew spirit and just building community is still uh, very true within our company, which, you know, speaks a lot, I think, to, to Chris's achievements and then everybody else that's helped build that vision. Well, and it's funny that it's not a very common story, but there are a few individuals that come to my mind, um, you know, Chris White being one of them, who uh, just, you know, studied the right thing at the right time where, um, you know, back in back in the day when the whole brewing thing it was kind of like the uh the wizard of oz where you know no one peeked behind the curtain nobody know how and <laughs> and and uh and so the, the the whole brewing thing was just a huge mystery but there was just a couple people who who just really understood they they paid attention in their microbiology classes and they just really understood yeast um and you know there's a gentleman uh up here in the northwest who started getting hired out by breweries like Widmere, for example, to kind of help them uh, do a better job with yeast. Because even these, you know, big craft breweries of that day uh, still, you know, were not very comfortable working with yeast. And, and uh, it's kind of funny how now in this day and age, because of people like Chris, now yeast, uh, now you have home brewers that have their own yeast banks and, and people who are kind of yeast experts. And it's just a wonderful to see that that, uh, that tiny aspect of the beer culture has uh, to see how that has grown as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it is it is cool to see how that's um, come to fruition and how it continues to grow and kind of you know, everybody looking at what's next with it. And I think the you know ten fifteen years ago it was very in person community driven, which obviously homebrewing still is, but. Uh, you know, like yourself saying, you live in a small town, the internet really helps connect a lot of people. And um, there's a lot of cool forums and groups where, you know, you've got a lot of friends that you might not know personally, but you really get to share those experiences. And you see a lot of yeast sharing and um, different cool projects um, that it that it's pretty cool to see that it's still very uh, community driven, which, you know, it has been for you know 500 years. Well, and he's really helped pull back that curtain so that um, you know, you know, the knowledge is more accessible. And, and uh, case in point, I, uh, one of the uh, guests on this podcast um, uh, has a kind of a breweries in Orange County, uh, and the breweries uh, Bean Curd Turtle. But that's just that's just kind of like a side project. He's actually a gypsy brewer that consults for breweries around the world. Um, but you know, you go on his Instagram feed and he talks about how he's harvesting yeast off his, the fruit in his backyard and is cultivating, and he's turning that into just some stellar uh, farmhouse beers. And it's just, you know, no one did that decades ago. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a pretty awesome story that we hear quite a bit now. Of you know, again, people looking for um, native yeast for different fermentations and. Uh, really just trying to push the boundaries, which, you know, again, it's kind of cool because it goes back to historically, it's what brewers have been doing for thousands of years. They just didn't really understand it until the mid late mid to late 1800s when uh, they were able to develop a little bit more consistent techniques to uh, propagate yeast and isolate yeast. And uh, now everybody's kind of come full circle where we want to know what's, um, who's got a, a cool ship down the street and what their beer is coming out like and mm-hmm. uh, maybe what's in it, you know, so it's, it's a cool mix of both worlds. Well, and, and I love, uh, and I've always loved the story that back in the day that, you know, brewers, uh, and this is like hundreds of years ago before we knew anything about microorganisms, um, you know, people would just brew some wort and they'd leave it out and come next morning, it would be bubbling and they'd just exclaim, God is good. And so um, the original name of, of, you know, what we now call yeast, people just assumed it was something superstitious and it was God is good. Uh, just one word, God is good. And and it was just funny that uh, just to think about um, you know, people back in the day before science, when it was, everything was was religious or superstitious at the at the least that um people just assumed that this was you know a gift from the gods 
Yeah. It was great. Yeah, and it's, you know, again, seeing kind of what people have been using historically and what's come full circle is uh, Kvike beers right now and Kvike yeast, which is a, um, a Nordic uh, farmhouse-type yeast that's uh, been pretty cool in the last couple of years to see how homebrewers and probers have been using it. And some of the uniqueness of these strains are actually that they're uh, phenol negative, so a lot of those herbal black pepper notes that you get in a lot of Belgian beers and farmhouse beers in general, you don't really get from these yeast strains and they're very temperature tolerant so you can use a lot of these up to 90 degrees fahrenheit whereas most ale beer um, you're brewing in the mid to low mid to high 60s sometimes low 70s and um, what's kind of cool about those is they would have what's called a witch's ring which is a interconnected uh, ring with a bunch of wooden uh, pegs that have a lot of surface area a lot of nooks and crannies um, essentially, this would be blessed, thrown into the wort. That magic frost would appear, that God is good that you're referring to, mm-hmm. and the beer would ferment. So unknown to them, you know, the one ring that they thought was blessed, you know, better blessed than the other one, just had better uh, microflora, you know, better yeast on it. And so, you know, they'd probably discard the one and uh, keep using the other one. So they were selectively domesticating yeast to... Uh, perform the way they wanted it to perform, you know, produce the flavors that they're looking for. And then they would also, when they're done brewing, um, you know, they would throw that outside of the the pub door and people would know that there's fresh beer. Uh, Very similar to when you go to a lot of pubs in England, they have a lot of flowers outside. You know, historically that was because when they put a fresh batch of beer on and tapped the fresh cask, they would put a bouquet of flowers outside um, and then as you'd walk by, you'd see the age of that bouquet of flowers and be able to determine how old the beer was. I've never heard that story. That is spectacular. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of purpose to a lot of the things that we, you know, see today. Yeah. Very functional <laughs> back yeah. then. Now it's, you know, just because it's the way things are. Yeah. Well, you know, like kind of like bringing uh, home uh, flowers to the wife that, that serves a very functional purpose and putting flowers, <laughs> putting flowers out on the door of the pub that uh, uh, another function. So, uh, you know, bring flowers. Yeah. Um, that's a good reminder. I'm going to write that one down. I know. I know. Right. I'll buy the store on my way home. <laughs> I know. Don't forget. <laughs> Happy Wednesday, dear. Um, uh, so uh, let's let's kind of dive into this. Um, just I want to make sure I kind of tap my foot on every base. Um, but let's talk about yeast and and frankly, what yeast is for anyone listening who's doesn't have a firm grasp of it. Sure, uh, yeast is in the fungi kingdom. Um, you know, we're primarily talking about Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, when we're brewing beer, we're primarily working with one strain within that species, um, meaning that, you know, a Belgian beer is produced with one type of yeast, uh, an English beer, another. But really what we're looking for is uh, the byproducts of fermentation, right? So CO2, ethanol, uh, glycerol being some of the primary metabolites. But when we're talking about um craft beer or very flavorful beer, the beer that we probably like to all consume, um, you're really looking at those secondary metabolites. So what are the other flavors that are being produced by these strains? Um, There are a lot of, quote, clean strains. When you hear that, you're really talking about strains that might not produce as much quantity of these secondary metabolites, um, but still have a lot of influence and a lot more influence than we might think or, or give it credit for. And um, a lot of that, you know, a, a good example of that, just to show yeast importance um, in producing finished beer, would be, uh, you know, if you break beer down on paper, you've got maybe 6% ethanol, 2% um, sugar, dextrins, uh, you've got some isoolic acids and some different terpenes from hops, so some hop aromatic and flavor compounds, as well as the, the bittering compounds. Um, and then 90 plus percent water. Uh, but there's a reason that you can't just take those components um, and make a finished beer. It has to go through fermentation. Because a lot of these, again, secondary metabolites uh, add a lot of nuance to the beer and a lot of complexity um, that we might not um, see if we were just to add you know, the sum of all those components together. Mm. So, um, and 
So yeast, single-celled, uh, basically a fungus that uh, that ferments our beer and adds a lot of, you know, creates the effect of alcohol and carbon dioxide, but can also add flavor to it. But where do we find yeast out in the world? Yeah, uh, you know, most of it's been, again, selectively domesticated, being passed down from brewer to brewer, uh, but it's very commonly found on fruit. So... If you get a, you find a grape with that um, kind of powdery white stuff on the skin of it, uh, there's a good chance that a lot of that's actually uh, yeast. And you know, there's a lot of wines that are that still use natural fermentations uh, by allowing that present microflora to be the one that ferments the juice. Um, a fun story that I that I always have is, um, you know, working in beer, most people understand. Um, what I do for a living, or at least generally, you know, get it, you hear a lot like, oh, you drink beer a lot. It's like, well, I taste beer a lot. <laughs> yes, there's a difference. A lot. Uh, there's a distinction, but, you know, working in in yeast is a little more uh, unobtainable for people. A lot of people kind of understand what it is, and, you know, I still have a lot of family members that, that don't quite understand what I do, but uh, they'll come and visit the facility here and kind of take it away. And so, you uh, one of my relatives came through and, you know, I was after working here for two, three years, did the whole tour. It was a group of like 20, 30 people I was shown around. And at the end of the tour, they were like friendship bread. I said, I don't, what the hell do you mean? Friendship bread? I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Like friendship bread is when you have a, a yeast starter, like, uh, you know, when you're making bread and you pull some of that off and you bring it to your neighbor. Uh, and that's actually becomes their starter. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's exactly friendship bread, right? <laughs> right? We're we're propagating yeast. Uh, we get more than we need. Well, you know, for say a brewery perspective, and then share it with the the neighbor down the street. So it was, you know, just a, a perspective that I'd never really heard before. But it, it completely made sense. Well, and and I've thought about that before too, and that is just the perfect analogy for people to understand. Because I mean, everyone knows everyone knows that word yeast, and that yeast is used in fermenting anything. And um, but just beyond that, it, it kind of starts getting geeky and lost. But that's the perfect analogy of you know you have yeast fermenting beer and basically giving it uh, air to make it light and fluffy. Um, and you just add more dough to that, and then the yeast grows more and more. And like you said, the friendship bread, so you can take some of that and share it. And there are stories of of people uh, come, immigrating from Italy and bringing their their special dough, uh, grandma's uh, dough starter, and bring it to a spot and opening up a restaurant. And now they have the best dough in town and because it actually came from Italy. Um, you know, fermenting wort is the same way, and krausening by taking some uh, some fresh wort and putting it with some old wort is really that same thing of that friendship bread of just keeping that um, yeast starter continuing on until you can batch it up, right? Yeah, yeah, and we, you know, have had a lot of immigrants from Europe that have come over to the United States to brew uh, in the eighteen early nineteen hundreds, and that has heavily influenced. Um, you know, American brewing culture quite a bit. Uh, you know, a lot of them were lager breweries coming from Germany. And so when they came over here, that's what they knew and tried to replicate as best they can. Uh, you know, and we, we talk about ales quite a bit, but lagers are still about 90% of the beer being produced um, worldwide. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the little cartoon that's been going around, but it's, uh, it's like called like the Angry Pilsner or something. And it's pretty funny. It's just, irritated at everybody, you know, saying like, I, you know, what do you mean? I'm the next trending style. I'm the most produced beer in the world. <laughs> He's uh, yeah. Lagers have been the trending style since the mid 1800s and, and they dominated the world. So it, it's kind of funny how everyone's raving about IPAs. The lagers like, yeah, I've been through this. <laughs> I, yeah. I know how yeah. this goes. <laughs> um, uh, so, and you talked about, you know, basically we break it down to in, in beers, Oftentimes, we just use a uh, single um, species of organism so that we can control our outcome. Uh, as soon as we get into lambics or wild ales, then that's when it's just a free-for-all party and where it goes is where it goes. But um, but when we're talking about ale yeast, we've got Saccharomyces cerevisiae. When we're talking about lager yeast, we're talking about uh, Saccharomyces pastorianus. 
But how do we end up with so many different flavor profiles and so many different types of, of beer if we basically have two yeast strains? Yeah, so, you know, you're really talking about two main yeast species, and there are thousands of strains within each of those species. So, um, you know, those have, again, um, kind of been domesticated. You know, you still get some wild-type strains, which tend to be your, your Belgian strains or your phenolic-positive uh, strains. Um, but, you know, it was about 500 years ago where we started seeing the, the domestication of a lot of those, and, and a lot of the, you know, the strains now are, asexual, which means they're going to be um, very consistent throughout multiple uses. Um, but, you know, another analogy, when we're talking about using um, one strain of yeast uh, to produce a lot of different beers or a couple main species, um, like you said, there are definitely other styles that uh, use different organisms as well. So, you know, going back to bread, sourdough bread, uh, has some acidity to it, right? So there's definitely some bacteria in there along with the yeast. And the yeast is primarily producing the CO2 to help rise the bread, uh, which is then being trapped in the gluten, which, again, is kind of uh, helping with the rise. Uh, but there is some acidity as well, which is kind of giving the, the bread that, that sourness, that tartness. Uh, and you see a lot of those same organisms used in, in multiple industries and, and then kind of translate to beer as well. So you know, you might wake up in the morning and uh, have a, a cup of coffee, a cup of yogurt, and a, a bagel or a piece of bread. And those are three products that have some aspect of fermentation that you've consumed before you even left the door. Um, so fermentation is definitely around us in, in many organisms. And I would argue that almost every plate of food you have has some derivative of fermentation. Uh, again, whether it's bread or maybe some um, vinegar and some condiment, um, you know, ketchup, mustard, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, there is some aspect of fermentation. And then you look on the, the beer side and, you know, people are doing these kettle sours, these quick um, 24 to 36 hour um, warm sours where they're using uh, lactic acid bacteria pulled from yogurt. Um, you know, historically, a lot of those organisms were still available and uh, some of those spontaneous lambic type beers, and those definitely have a lot more complexity. But again, it's it's uh it's cool to see how you know we might encounter these organisms day to day. You know, Saccharomyces cerevisiae being um, the same species of yeast that's used to bake bread, um, and so in return, our our brew pub in Asheville, we uh, we've experimented a lot over the two years we've been open, and uh, we've kind of settled on Saccharomyces brucellensis trois as being the uh, main strain to ferment our pizza dough, mm. uh, which, you know, kind of goes back to that um, friendship bread, right? You know, it's, we're baking, uh, we're making pizza in the same facility we're making yeast, so we should, it just makes sense to share that yeast with the restaurant. Yeah, no, that's fair. And so uh, just a quick aside, so, I mean, all the all the things that we consume on a daily basis that are fermented with yeast or even a bacteria, but we've got bread, We've got obviously beer, wine, sake, um, any spirit that goes through um, uh, fermentation before it's distilled. Um, certain meats and charcuteries like a salami, for example, right? That'll be yeah, fermented. Uh, yep. Chocolate. Um, I think I said cheeses, but if not cheeses, uh, a lot of them will be fermented. Um, what what else is out there that would be fermented from from these processes and yeast and bacteria? Yeah, coffee and chocolate are pretty cool examples because most people don't realize that there is some aspect of fermentation and there actually uh, helps with processing the beans on the farm, but it also develops a lot of um, acids and precursors for flavor development um, through roasting. Mm. Uh, but uh, some more obvious ones would be uh, sauerkraut, kimchi. Yeah. Uh, you know, those are using a lot of lactic acid bacteria. Kombucha is a huge one now that you're seeing um, in in most grocery stores now have a cold case with kombucha and it's pretty interesting to see that become as popular as it is because it's, um, it can be a pretty aggressive, uh, product, especially as it ages. And, you know, I think it's kind of teaching people that, you know, something fresh should probably taste a little bit different as it ages. And if you're trying something that, you know, tastes the same for four or five years at a time, it's, uh, you know, probably not the best thing to be consuming. And, uh, you know, beer is the same way where 99% of beer is not as good as it is fresh, but unfortunately, 
um, you know, most distributors and retailers and grocery stores aren't treating it uh, as they should, which is more like milk. Uh, I mean, we know, especially as, as brewers, what a week-old IPA tastes like compared to an eight-week-old IPA. It's starkly different mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, can can really affect how somebody uh, views a brand or a specific beer. Yeah, and, and that's a really good analogy using milk. I mean, that beer doesn't go bad quite uh, to the same impact that milk goes bad, um, but it, it definitely... <laughs> it, there's a definite change. Um, yeah, it's, it's not you know it's, it's not going to kill you. I mean, for the most part, you know, beer being uh, very inhospitable to pathogens with a low pH, high alcohol, um, high isoalkyl acids. So um, it's a fairly stable product in that sense. But when it comes to freshness and flavor, it's it's huge. And there's a lot of package stores here in San Diego where it's difficult to go in there and, and buy beer. And I was with somebody uh, pretty recently in one of them and they asked how much, you know, how much of this beer is bad? Cause I mentioned it. And I'm like, probably 90% of this beer is bad, but you know, mm-hmm. bad is just very relative to um, what the brewer, you know, determines shelf life should be. And, you know, again, you might get an Imperial style of barley wine, something bigger, um, some of the sours that, that might age well, but for the most part, it's, it's all best fresh, just like your other fermented goods. Yeah, um, you know most things are are better fresh. You know maybe cheese or um, some cheese that they intentionally age and release when it's meant to be released. Well, I think a, a better analogy, like like you said, for the most part, um, beer is pathogen free. You'll never get sick, and even an old beer. Uh, you know, depending on the beer, it can still be semi-pleasant to drink, depending on how into this you get. But I think a great analogy would be like gum. I mean, a fresh piece of gum is just wonderful. But if you find a piece of gum that's been sitting in a drawer for five <laughs> years, you can still chew it, but it's going to be it's going to be hard. The flavor is going to be gone, and it's like it's up to you whether you want to do that or not. But um, yeah, I, I'd rather go with fresh. <clears throat> Yeah, um, but you got to get the little little comic with the uh, bazooka, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Me of, it's always stale and opaque. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Toss toss the gum because you know it's going to be bad. But the the comic is good. Um, <laughs> God, I forgot about that. I, I think that's <laughs> that's dating us. Um, uh, so uh, we've. Uh, so if yeast is everywhere, you can find it on a lot of fruits. You can find it, uh, shoot, even uh, Rogue Brewery uh, pulled yeast out of uh, John Meyer's beard to make a beard beers. I mean, you can find yeast anywhere. It, it's yeah. a natural recurring thing. Um, yeah, and we were part of that project. Actually. Oh, oh, were you? So, uh, yeah, it was kind of fun to fun to hear that. And I, I remember before we opened up our um, Asheville facility, we were all at a bar and uh, it was Chris White and a couple of our sales team and some of our lab team and all going to this bar and the, the bouncers, you know, saying, yeah, I heard this East company's coming to town and all that. And, you know, it's cool to see what he said. And started talking about the beard beer and, you know, Chris kind of chimed in and, uh, you know, told him the whole story, but, you know, essentially they were just uh, laying a lot of environmental plates. And uh, as a joke, Nava Parker who's our VP of um, operations swabbed his beard and that ended up being, you know, the, the yeast that would uh, behave the best through a fermentation. And, uh, you know, there's a good chance that, that it was uh, their brewing strain uh, or, you know, something similar that they're working with. Being a brewer, it totally makes sense to be exposed to that. Um, but but it's a pretty cool story and grosses a lot of people out. So seeing marketing for that beer is pretty interesting. Yeah. Oh, I actually got to try it. And everyone was just disgusted by that. But if you understand the brewing process, then, you know, have no fear. But it, it um, I, I just had a taste of it once back when it was actually in the pub in uh, in Newport, and uh, and it, w- it was a bit on the uh, tart side. So I'm I'm sure there was some bacteria involvement there as well. But but it, it was yeah. kind of a, a fun story, a fun experiment. <clears throat> yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, it's an, again an easy way to communicate that yeast is everywhere yeah um i've got i've got a pretty big beard so i don't like that story that much <laughs> everybody starts looking at me a little bit different i know yeah you're thinking no no we're not doing this again <laughs> so uh th- this is a perfect segue but um so will you describe you know how does one capture yeast in the wild and then propagate that up to a point where you can actually use that in a beer sure um there's a couple different ways of doing it but um 
probably the easiest, especially from a homebrew scale, would be just to, you know, get a gross medium um, that you're going to be doing your starters in. Um, so, so such as, you, such as what? Gravity. Uh, and then you can either um, inoculate it with, you know, fruit peels and kind of see. And what you're really looking for, though, is um, some visible activity, so to see something fermented. Uh, but really what you want to look at is pH drop because that's going to determine um, safety. Um, you know, there's you really want something that acidifies. If it doesn't, um, if it just produces a little bit of CO2, maybe drops the gravity a little bit, there's um, still some risk of it not being safe for uh, human consumption. So um, just using uh, either a broth or, and most likely just uh, a, a growth medium you use for a starter, um, throwing some fruit in that, you know, leaving it in different environments, whether it's an orchard, and, you know, just experimentation. But um, you should be able to see more sedimentation from it if it is something that's able to grow. And then, again, you kind of look at um, not just the visuals of it, but the pH and gravity drop as well to make sure that it can actually attenuate because a lot of the wild strains out there, you know, might be great in a mixed culture, but if it doesn't produce a dry beer, um, it's, you know, not going to be something you're going to want to drink. Mm. But again, I just I caution to look at pH as your, your biggest indicator because safety is most important. And so you said a growth medium. Are we talking about just a, a very light, easy wart, like a made with a dry malt extract up to gravity like 1040, for example? I mean, I've yeah. used that for to propagate yeast. Is that something you can use to capture yeast? Yep. So you just get a, a, a cup of, uh, uh, of uh, low-gravity wart, stick it out in the yard, and hope for the best type of situation? Or is there something more yeah. clinical we can do? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, again, there are environments that are... Um, you know, going to be more likely to have um, yeast that's able to ferment. So under a fruit tree, um, that kind of stuff is probably going to yield um, more, you know, you're going to have a better chance of getting something. But um, I also wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you don't get anything that's usable. And um, obviously aroma is a pretty pretty big indicator too, uh, again, when it comes to safety and preference. So uh, if it smells putrid, it's probably not something you should use or that you want to use. <laughs> Good advice uh, but, all the way around. You know, yeah. You know, if it smells like uh, the pineapples and uh, the pH is sitting in the low fours and it was able to attenuate, you know, and you see a lot of growth, you see a lot, a lot of more biomass in it, then sure, that's a, a great thing that you want to keep stepping up. And you want to remain as sterile as possible while doing it. Um, there's a good chance that, you know, you are going to have a lot of other organisms in there. Um, so you just, you know, kind of want to be aware when working with that stuff that it's, um, you know, if you did use some selective media, it would be a little bit easier to um, help identify that and separate that out. But for all intents and purposes, if it's a one-off homebrew, I, you know, we'll just have fun with it and throw it all in there. And if you bottle it, just keep an eye on it so it doesn't keep attenuating and end up with bottle bombs. And and it probably is worth mentioning as well for any homebrewers out there that want to attempt to capture and cultivate their own yeast. Um, uh, uh, brewer beware, because if you introduce this uh, yeast into your everyday homebrew system and lines and stuff like that, there's a possibility that that your entire system can get infected and you will never not brew a beer with this yeast again. Is that... Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I would look at is your your sauce, so any of your hosing, um, any of your gaskets, stuff that could be easily replaced. I mean, if you have good um, sanitation, you know, you should be able to do, say, a Brett beer and a, a clean beer on the same system and not have a problem. Um, you know, there are just a lot of dynamics of homebrew equipment that don't make them the easiest to clean. And, you know, I'm personally guilty of a lot of that because I... I homebrewed for the first time in four years, probably two months ago. And when my brother-in-law was back in town from college, did his first extract batch at school, which funny enough, he didn't use our yeast. So that was pretty irritating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, he came down and, and we brewed a beer and, you know, we're just having a couple beers all day while we're doing it. And he's like, you know, this hose is fine. just spray down with the hose. It's fine. And, the beer turned out okay. Some of the bottles actually had contamination and <laughs> were kind of had some lactic uh, tartness to it, which was 
unintended, but you know, do as I say, not as I do, I guess. Yeah. Well, and, and it, you know, I, I just brewed for the first time in a couple of years. So, you know, uh, cheers to you, but, um, but you know, if you are going to try and do something with like, especially Brett, that, I think the advice that I always heard was um, if that's something you want to do um, over and over again, just have separate equipment for, for the wild beers and, and a separate equipment for your ordinary beers. And if it's, yeah, if it's yeah, just going to be a one and done, then just replace your lines, replace your gaskets. That's cheap. Yeah, that's that's the best rule of thumb. Uh, you know, again, you should be cleaning and sanitizing to the standard that it doesn't matter. But you know, again, just the logistics of it and the real, you know, being realistic, it's it's better to replace it just because you know six hours of our day, you know, on a weekend, if the beer doesn't turn out great in a month, uh, you know, it's kind of a bummer. So an extra ten bucks on some hoses and that stuff is is definitely worthwhile. Yeah, and and Frank- uh, another good resource is you know Milk the Funk. Like on our website, we have a lot, uh, but Milk the Funk is such a community-driven group um, that, and they their Wikipedia, their wiki page is just full of a lot of resources. And if you have questions, you can. Um, it's very interactive, and, and some of the information on there is not always accurate, but I think they they do a very very good job of moderating it. So I would check that out if you're interested in capturing your own wild cultures. Uh, that's awesome. I will stick that in the uh, show notes um, or a little link to that. Um, and I love that name, Milk the Funk. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm going to kind of start winding down a little bit. Um, but what do you think that beer drinkers and especially beer professionals, whether brewers or not, what do you think that they really, really need to know about yeast that they kind of get wrong or don't understand completely? Yeah, they need to understand that that cell counting and, and looking at yeast under a microscope is uh, very important. And again, most brewers do understand this, uh, but surprisingly, a lot of them don't, or they feel intimidated by it. You know, say I haven't used the microscope since high school, and it's you know, anytime you get any other raw ingredients, you know, when when you get malt, you're gonna look at the kernel size might taste a little bit of it. You're going to see if there's a lot of chaff in there to make sure it's consistent. Uh, and if you get hops, you're going to do a hop rub. Uh, when people get yeast, you know, they tend to overlook uh, needing to do some some very easy QC on it. Uh, you know, when people are reusing yeast, it's, and that's primarily where the issues arise is when they're on, you know, generation two through ten. Uh, you know, they'll base it off of volume and repitch um, not really looking at the, the concentration of the yeast, and more importantly, the health of the yeast. Uh, because yeast don't really, in, they don't enjoy being uh, in fermentation conditions. Uh, it stresses them out. They're not producing as much energy. They're not building up the reserves they need to. Um, so over time, they're going to start to um, lose vitality, that overall life force, and, and maybe not behave as well. And it's, you know, it might show itself as increased sulfur production. The flocculation might not be as great, uh, might have more diacetyl present. So just, you know, again, a lot of these other uh, metabolites which are often deemed as off flavors. Um, and it's very preventable Preventable if you're able to look at it under a microscope uh, with a simple dye, you can uh, kind of get an idea. So, you know, same as hops and malt, I'd say look at your yeast. And that and it doesn't even always mean under a microscope. Like, you know, know what that yeast should look like. Know what it should smell like. Taste it. Um, dead yeast versus living yeast uh, tastes a little bit different. So um, there are some simple tools and just the overall ethos, I guess, when dealing with raw ingredients. And the same should be applied for yeast. Do you have resources on the White Labs page that help people um with stuff like this, understanding their yeast better and how to set up a simple QC? Yeah, definitely. It's on there. Our catalog's a pretty good resource, actually, on um, harvesting and reusing and just some simple things you should be looking at. Great. Uh, you know, and another another thing I was hoping to bring up during this podcast, too, just to help people understand the role of brewers versus yeast in, in the grand scheme of things, and I definitely want your take on this, is, um, you know, brewers get a lot of credit for, or credit for creating amazing beers, um, but it, it's it, I think it's helpful to think of them in more terms of just being a rancher who goes out and tends to the cattle, their sheep, the, the livestock, what it may be. Um, brewers are very much 
just ranchers, except their livestock just tends to be a single-celled fungus. And so they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're really creating an environment. They're just trying to take care of the yeast, make sure the yeast are comfortable so when it comes time, um, they can pitch that yeast into, a, into some wort so that the yeast can do their job. Then they pull that yeast back out, set them aside, and just take very good care of them. And, and they're, they're really just kind of creating an environment so that the yeast can do all the work so that then the brewers can take credit for it. Fair? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think brewers would, would call themselves janitors over ranchers, but yeah, that's a cool one too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They they just kind of over they they facilitate the the goings on, but they they they're not directly responsible for the goings on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's creating the correct environment to allow the yeast to flourish, just like you would with um, you know any living organism that you're. Um, trying to get something from for sure. Yeah. But I think back to your comment about uh, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of doing some, even some simple uh, quality control. Um, you know, if, if you do want to work with yeast, if you are a brewer, a home brewer, whatever, um, you know, that, that really is your job is to care for the yeast, create this environment, create these flavor profiles. And if you're going to examine the the malt and taste them and the sniff the sniff the uh, uh, hops, you know, don't be afraid of yeast. I mean, it's, you know, you can taste it. It, it tastes kind of like uh, wet bread dough it, it, to some extent. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's not bad, just, but just get to know it. <laughs> yeah. Just don't eat, uh, don't eat too much of it. Yeah. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, if you do, send me a video. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you ask for. You might, you might get it. Uh, <laughs> doing shots of yeast for you, that'd be. <laughs> this is this is no, oh, yeah, no. Oh, well, and there, it's it's not funny. It's a very serious medical condition. Um, but it's it, I find it fascinating, interesting that uh, you can create. Uh, I I think they call it an auto brewery syndrome, where you um, you end up replacing your gut flora, your natural gut flora with a lot more yeast and stuff that will actually start fermenting whatever you put in your stomach. It'll actually start fermenting that so that you have a very um, uh, low grade alcohol running through your system all the time. Are you aware of this? Uh, I've seen title, you know, article titles, but I haven't really looked into it too much. I I, I read about this uh, some time ago and, and it's very, very rare, but it is a thing and, and it's... It, so uh, maybe maybe don't eat too much of the yeast or drink too much of the slurry because um, you know you don't need to become your own brewery. Um, uh, so uh, Eric, um, if you could be the beer king of the world for a day, what would you change? Uh, that's a, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I I think there's a lot of different you know beer styles and in products for, for everybody. I, I personally don't like food in my beer. And what I mean by that is, you know, chocolate, fruit, cereal, that kind of stuff, mm. but, um, you know, to each their own. So there, there's plenty of beer out there that I enjoy. Um, I guess if I changed anything, I'd go back to fresh accessible beer. And, you know, I drink a lot of hazy IPAs and it's not cause it's my favorite style. It's just because it's very obvious that they're fresh and people are rotating through them. And, um, you know, they're easy to get. I guess more West Coast IPAs is what I would um, really shoot for. You know, being in uh, San Diego, there was a um, good picture from G- GABF, um, where I think it's Thorn Brewing had a, uh, you know, there's that classic meme of somebody sitting on a college campus and it says, you know, something changed my mind. And it said, you know, West Coast IPAs originated, originated from San Diego, changed my mind, and thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, I, someone asked recently, how do you feel about basically, uh, essentially pastry beers and, and I've tasted a bunch of them. They're fun. Um, but frankly, I'd rather have a traditional beer and pair it with a pastry than actually have that chocolate cake beer or that cereal beer or something like that. I think I'm with you on that one. Yeah. But I, I do think it's important that the industry has people really excited about certain beers and are, um, seeking them out and, you know, chasing them and doing trades and stuff. And I think that, that passions, uh, definitely helps to drive it and, you know, uh, allows some of those breweries to maybe produce beer that, um, other beer geeks might enjoy outside of that. 
Yeah, and, and they're fun. I've I've tasted a beer that tasted exactly like uh, carrot cake, a really good carrot cake with cream cheese frosting, and it was it was impressive that you could pull that off. But um, but you know, I'm I'm not going to drink that on a on a Friday night typically. So yeah. Um, so if you had the opportunity to choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart this earth, what do you think they'd be? <laughs> uh, you should have sent me these beforehand, man. These are good questions. Uh, I, would I like say the candid answers better. White, than... wine, <laughs> white wine and garlic reduction muscles with Lefin Dubon. Ooh, nice. That's my, uh, that's my go-to. I get it about two, three times a year, and it's... Uh, Pretty money. It's also great with Sancerre, which is a Sauvignon Blanc from the Oh yeah, no, I, lo- I yeah, I love that wine. Um, uh, but I can tell you've thought about this before because y- y- you didn't take very long to come up with a pretty detailed <laughs> I do answer. A lot of beer and food pairing classes, so I've got a a couple on my back burner. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got I've got a uh, revolving. Uh, depending on my mood, I'll have a different answer to that same question. It's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> Uh, so given all your studies and everything we've talked about and just kind of the summation of your experience with beer, why does good beer matter? Um, good is very relative, right? Uh, I think beer in general matters uh, because, again, the sense of community, and that's really what it comes back to. Um, I know a lot of people in this industry um, are very passionate people, and you know it, it's a little pretentious, but to try to think that you're putting something better into the world than you're taking from it. Um, and, you know, I think, again, I think good beer matters uh, as long as it makes somebody happy. Uh, you know, I've been saying quite a bit recently with, with so much good beer out on the market that I would rather drink in a place with um, B-plus beer that's got a great atmosphere and good company than a place with A-plus beer that's very uncomfortable with you know, and it's not that inviting. And so, you know, that, that kind of signifies for me that the beer quality and is very, very important, but fortunately we're kind of getting past that point where most beers pretty good quality. Um, so where we can really be able to pick and choose a little bit more based off of the experience we want to have with it, as opposed to just having to seek out and go where the good beer is. The good beer kind of comes to us now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've, I've experienced the same thing where people are just like, yeah, I, we can find good beer anywhere. What else you got? And yeah, it's, it's, I mean, people, that, you know, you can go to Chili's and it's like, you know, people might complain about it, but you can go to Chili's in San Diego. I bet there's Stone IPA. There's definitely some Sam Adams and, uh, you know, bigger regional brands, but there's still great beer. Like you, you don't have to go to these, uh, you know, 50 tap gastro pubs that only have one-offs anymore to to get something that you can enjoy. Yeah, and you don't need to know the secret handshake to know exactly where to go and talk to the guy about it, getting that one yeah. good beer. It, it, no, it's it's ubiquitous now. Um, Definitely. So if, if people want to learn more about White Labs or especially uh, dive into all the resources that you have available, um, I mean, it looks like you guys do some not just yeast uh, propagation and selling, but also a bunch of consulting and other work as well. If people yeah, are interested yeah, in learning uh, more, where do they go? Yeah, whitelabs.com is a great resource. Um, our website's getting a makeover in the next couple months, so um, hopefully those a lot of those resources will become a little more concise. But uh, we do a pretty cool newsletter, Customer Club, which is, um, you know, all the homebrewers and beer geeks are kind of great for that with a lot of recipes and what's new and that stuff. Um, our social media, White Labs East, uh, Instagram's pretty active, Facebook is pretty active, and then we've got a couple, um, you know, tasting room pages and white labs kitchen and tap and astrals are our, our brew pub and always doing um some pretty great stuff out there so that's worth following as well right on thank you uh and then last question for you uh do you have any final uh words of wisdom no but it was a it was a great time talking to you and you know i and more importantly, anybody that's still listening at this point i know yeast is a it's a pretty dense subject so i really appreciate you uh, sticking through with us and I hope that everybody was able to take something away, but, you know, just, just think that yeast is very important. Fermentation is very important. Um, and we wouldn't have a lot of the consumables that we do, um, without it. We don't all need to be experts on it. Um, but I think, uh, respecting it and understanding the importance that it's played on, uh, not just the drink in front of us, but, um, kind of cultivating that community and, um, 
helping civilization, you know, get to the point where we are, I think it was, you know, played a pretty big role. And just to tag on, not to, not to, um, not to take over your final wisdom, but just to add to that is, I mean, uh, fermentation has been such a part of our culture for, I mean, thousands and thousands of years. Um, and there's so many products out there, like we listed earlier. Um, I mean, just, just chocolate for goodness sake. I mean, if, if anyone cares about chocolate, just have a basic understanding of, of fermentation and what yeast actually does for us. Um, I think if people better understood that better, they would be less uh, revolted by the idea of pulling yeast out of a beard to make beer out of. I think they'd be like, yeah, Oh, right on. I can't 100%. wait to try that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're getting there though. And, you know, looking at, again, looking at the back of a cup of yogurt and seeing the probiotics in it, and you'll see lactobacillus plantarum. And there's a good chance that your uh, tart fruit beer has, you know, the same organism kind of helps produce it. So, it's not, it's not that far off, and we, you know, we've become more consistent, but we really haven't moved away from our roots too much. Yeah, and and so maybe we can sign off with that, that uh, beer has probiotics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good for you. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, uh, tell my wife that. All <laughs> right. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and just kind of sharing some of your insights on yeast and everything. And, um, yeah, I've, I'm grateful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time. It was, uh, it was great talking to you. Uh, likewise. When discussing beer, people often gravitate to the sexy descriptions of the citrusy tropical hops or the toasty and bready malt, the complex role that yeast play is often overlooked. Perhaps with better understanding and appreciation, the contributions by yeast in your beer will be the next topic of more sophisticated discussions. Join us in the next episode where we take a deep dive into the wonderful world of cheese, beer, and a whole lot more. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.